Jesus, we uh, thank you again for this time. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us now through your word. God, there's nothing, uh, Lord, that we need more than to hear your voice. Lord, to hear something uh, that you would say to us, Jesus. And Lord, you can't be here in person right now because you're up in heaven preparing a place for us. But Lord, you've sent your Holy Spirit that indwells us. Lord God, and you've given us your word, which you value even above your name. And Lord God, so this word that we hold in front of us, that we each have in our laps, uh, Lord, that we have on our phones, and, and Lord, I'd pray that it would not be just there. I pray it would be in our hearts. In our heart, we would love your word. We would love uh, just, it would be like honey to our lips, Lord. We rejoice to hear praise to you coming from the pages of Scripture and, and being read from the lips of our own mouth. And God, we just thank you so much for a place we can get together and meet. We thank you for each and every person here and how you have appointed them. You brought them here. Lord, there are so many different places they could be on a Sunday morning, but Lord, you have worked it out so that they are here. And God, I know that that wasn't in vain. I know that there wasn't, there isn't a single person who just happened to show up here this morning. And God, with the message, Lord, that you have for us today, I pray it would be received with soft hearts. Lord, not with hard hearts or skeptical hearts, but Lord, with a heart that wants to hear your voice. So Jesus, we exalt you. We lift you up on high, Jesus Christ, our Savior, and we pray that you would speak to us now. Amen. We're in Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 7. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. So that's our our text for today. That's the verse that we're going to be looking at. And we're going, to, we're, going to, um, we're going to kind of unfold this and unpack the meaning of it. And so we're going to begin with that word redemption. And as Jesus is teaching us how to be, excuse me, how to be the church uh, through the book of Ephesians, that's why there's a big crown thing on, our, on the logo, uh, because it's like a, uh, the church is like uh, a kingdom that he's building. And that's a, it's kind of that symbol for the church. And as he's teaching us how to be the church, a very foundational part of that is redemption. And we've got to understand what the word redemption means. It, 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 the, the definition of it, if you look, is to purchase something back that has been lost by payment of a ransom. By payment of a ransom. So it's kind of like if someone is being held ransom, uh, the, the price that you pay for that uh, person would be the redemption price. And I'm going to illustrate it with a story. There was a little boy uh, named, we'll call him Tom, okay? Does that sound like a good name? Tom? All right. So Tom is our little boy, and he made a boat. He carved it out of wood. He spent all kinds of time carving this boat. He had his little pocket knife, and he carved it, and he even put his initials in it, you know, T. I don't know what his last name was, but he probably carved that one too. T something. And uh, we'll, we'll call it T.S. I don't know why. Maybe his last name started, whatever. Law got really distracted right there. Tom carved his boat with a knife. And he took it, his new boat that he carved, he took it out to the river. 
to the edge and he carefully placed it in the water, just so proud of his his creation that he made right there. And he, and he had this little string connected to his boat. He slowly started to let the boat into the river to see if it would float. And to his joy, it was pretty awesome. It floated great. It sailed smoothly. And uh, it was warm and shiny. And so he just kind of sat back to admire his boat and the day. And then all of a sudden, this gust of wind came up and pushed his boat his boat out into the river and the current caught it and it, and it caught it out of his hand and it, it washed away. And he was, he ran down the shore as fast as he could to try to catch his boat, but it was hopeless because the boat just was going too fast. And so we, he searched all day and all night until it was too dark for him to search any longer and so he sadly went home. A few days later, as Tom was walking home from school, he spotted a boat just like the boat that he lost in a, uh, in a pawn store window. And when he got closer, he could see it was his boat because it had his initials, the TS, right? <laughs> it has his initials right there on the boat. And he said he goes into the store and he yells, sir, sir, that's my boat in your window. Can I have my boat back? He says, sorry, son, but someone else brought that boat into me this morning and I bought that boat. And so if you want the boat, you're going to have to buy the boat. It'll cost a dollar. So Tom ran home. He counted all his money and he had exactly one dollar. And so he came back to the store and he rushed in and he slapped that dollar down on the table. And he said, here's the money for my boat. And as he left the store, Tom hugged his boat and he said, now you're twice mine. First I made you and then I bought you. And that story is a perfect description of how Jesus redeems us. How we can understand redemption. See, he created us. Jesus, it says, was the one who created. All things were created by him. Without him, nothing is made that has been made. That's John chapter 1. And so Jesus created us, but we were sold into this pawn shop of slavery. All right? And Jesus buys us back with the redemption of his blood, it says here. Let's read our text again. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. See, our boy, Tom, he gave everything he had, all the money he had, he had to pay to redeem that. And Jesus also gave everything he had. He gave his very life. He gave his blood to buy us back, to pay the price, to redeem us. So you and I, all of us in here, have been bought. We've been paid for. We were owned by sin, and now we are rightfully owned by Jesus. But I thought I was my own man, you say. I thought I was the boss of my life. See, this world goes around teaching us and, and, and uh, trying to convince us that you're your own person, that you have the right to make any decision you want to make. And no one can tell you not to make that decision or this decision, and that's your right because you're a human being. 
And you guys have to be so careful to understand that no one has that right. We think we do, but the reality is we are owned by someone or something. You're either owned by Jesus, which means the things you do, you do in obedience to him, or you're owned by sin. And that's what the world doesn't get. They don't get it. That when they're deciding to do whatever they want to do, which is sin, that they're really submitting themselves as a slave to sin. That's the reality of the situation. There is no just autonomous freedom out there in the world. But that's what they carry as their flag. We are free from the tyranny of religion and rules and all these things. When actually only believers in Jesus are free from the tyranny of the law. We are the ones who are free, yet we are the ones who actually do the law. When God puts it on our hearts, when we're abiding in him and filled with his spirit, we actually do the law because that is his heart. And we're filled with his heart. We're filled with his spirit. So we're actually doing these things, not because we're slaves to it, but because we love the Lord. And he loves us and we're filled with his spirit. And so the world thinks they're free, but they're actually not. They must be redeemed. They have to be redeemed. They get to be redeemed, but they're fighting against it. And we have to be able to skillfully explain to them, bro, you need redemption. My sister, you need redemption. You are a slave and you don't even know it. The debt against us is not viewed as simply canceled in this verse, but as fully paid. See, that's a a very important thing for us to understand. Is when Jesus bought us back, he did not just say, okay, you're forgiven of everything. I I just erased it. I just canceled it. That would be like the, the boat owner saying, oh, this boat belongs to you? Okay, here you go. You can have it for free. You can have your boat back. But that's not what redemption is. Redemption demands that there be a price paid, the right price, whatever the right price is. For that boat, it was a dollar. For you and me, it's blood. What? Man, this is starting to creep me out. See, Jesus did not just simply save us by saying, you are saved. I declare it, so it is. By simply exercising his power. And so we cannot say he just has all the power so he can just save whoever he wants. That's not how it works. Yes, he's God. He can say whatever he wants. But that's not how redemption works. He could have just said, I saved you by my power. But that's not what we're taught here. He says, I saved you by redemption. I redeemed you. And there's two different things. Jesus did not come to save us by his power or his doctrine. He didn't save. He didn't say you're saved because I'm bringing correct understanding and all you have to do is know the Bible and you'll be saved. That would be like the guy selling the boat saying, do you understand that this is your boat and do you understand that it was lost and do you understand that I have it and do you understand that I'm now going to give it to you? Having correct doctrine doesn't save you. He didn't save us simply by his example either. 
He didn't say, you can be saved if you live like me. Another way, he didn't save us by his moral influence. He didn't say, you can be saved if you treat others this way or that way. None of those things are the same as redemption. Those are a few different things, and people get them confused. Oh yeah, we're saved by this, we're saved. but none of them are redemption. This says here, we are only saved by his blood. We are only redeemed by his blood. Spurgeon, my favorite guy, man. Love this guy. He said, observe. It is not redemption through his power. It is redemption through his blood. It is not redemption through his love. It is redemption through his blood. It doesn't matter how much God loved you if he wouldn't have given you his blood. Wow. That's amazing. The evangelist John Wesley in the 1700s was returning home from a service one night when he was robbed. The thief, however, found his victim to only have a little money and some Christian literature. And as the bandit was leaving, Wesley called out, Stop! I have something more to give you. The surprised robber paused. My friend, said Wesley, you may live to regret this sort of life. And if you do, if you ever do, here's something to remember. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. The thief hurried away and Wesley prayed that his words might bear fruit. Years later, Wesley was greeting people after a Sunday service when he was approached by a stranger. And what a surprise to learn that the visitor, now a believer in Christ and a successful businessman, was the same one who robbed him years before. I owe it all to you, said the transformed man. Oh, no, my friend, Wesley exclaimed, not to me, but to the precious blood of Christ, which cleanses us from all sin. So, but why? Why the blood? Why, why all this study? Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16. You've got to go all the way. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus chapter 16. I want to show you some stuff about why. Why it had to be blood. You know, what is the big deal with blood? Why is this such a, a bloody religion, this Christianity? Is this some big cult of vampires? You all read in Twilight every night when you go home? What kind of dog does a vampire have? A bloodhound. I worked with a vampire once. He was a real pain in the neck. What do you call a vampire snowman? Frostbite. Why did the vampire read the Wall Street Journal? Because he heard it had great circulation. But if you ever want to get on my good side, send me cheesy jokes in the mail or my email. I love cheesy. Thank you, Jan. She sent me, she gave me this whole two. You can thank her. That's why I'm so cheesy. <laughs> Just kidding. In, uh, in Leviticus chapter 16, we learn a little bit about blood here. And why it had to be blood. Why Jesus had to give his blood. He couldn't just say, I love you guys so much. Come be with me. He, didn't, he couldn't do that. He couldn't say, just follow me, just be my, just my example, just any of these other things. It had to be blood. It had to be his blood. 
verses 1 through 3 here in Leviticus 16. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of his two sons of Aaron, when they offered profane fire before the Lord and they died. So these, these two sons of Aaron, Hophni and Phinehas, they uh, were jerks, man. They were terrible representations of God, okay? And so they were t- taking the people's money and the offerings and stealing it. And then they took strange fire and offered it for... Uh, they went into God's presence with this strange fire and they offered it before the Lord because everything was a joke to them. This was all just a joke, They didn't understand blood. They didn't understand that this was life, that God was serious about this. And it was a joke. And so God killed them. Killed them. And he says, when that happened, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come just any time into the Holy of Holies. Should have known this, bro. You can't just walk up into God's presence like you're cool. God is too wonderful for that. Do not just go into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. Or he's going to die just like his sons just did. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. You're coming into my presence. Verse 3. Then Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. He says, I want to keep you from dying, Aaron. So Moses, tell Aaron, I love him. I want to have a relationship with all of you guys. I want to use Aaron. But sin separates us. It just is the natural thing that happens with sin. It separates people. If someone punches you in the face, are you going to be best friends with them? If someone punches you in the face, are you going to be best friends with them? No. No. You're not. That's the natural thing that happens when someone sins against you. You're like, bro, where's the love? And the same thing happens with every sin between us and God is it separates us. And so God here, he's saying, I love you. I want to have a relationship with you, but sin is separated. And you will die if you just walk into my presence. There has to be a blood sacrifice. Something's got to die because of your sin. So it's either going to be you. It's not going to be me because I'm God and I can't die. So it's going to be you or we need to find a substitute, a sacrifice. Now look at verse 6. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for him and his house. And then look at verse 14. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side, before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. And then we get to keep going there in verse 15 and 16. And then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, to bring its blood inside the veil, to do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull. And sprinkle it on the mercy seat before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions and for their sins. So why does there have to be all this blood? Because the people were sinful. They were unclean. They, they were, had transgressions. And he says, and so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting, which remains among them in the midst of 
of their uncleanness. So he describes here that they set up this system of how they could actually have a relationship with God. And it was, they had to kill a bull for the priests, and then they had to kill a goat for the people. And they did this once a year. And they would go put the blood of those sacrifices on the mercy seat, which was the top of the Ark of the Covenant, inside this holy place, this room, where they only went once per year. So once a year, and this, what you just read, what we just studied, was called the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was a very special day. They should still be doing it in Israel, but you know what? They can't. Why? Because they don't have a temple right now. And so you know what they've twisted around to think? Is that, well, we can't sacrifice our, our goats and our bulls, and we can't do that right now. So we'll just make the Day of Atonement a day where we just ask God for forgiveness and think good thoughts about people, and it's become a very secular way of thinking. So far from the heart of God. Because the heart of God has to do with the blood. How can you come into his presence without blood? He says here. So that day today is called Yom Kippur, right? And so as you guys are are thinking about the world today and what you see and what you see Israel do on Yom Kippur, maybe it's an opportunity for you to explain to them, hey, what about the blood? What about that blood? Oh, well, I'm sure God understands. Really? Because he seemed pretty serious when he said, I'll kill you if you don't have blood. That seemed pretty serious to me. Well, what about you? Well, I have some blood. I'll tell you about that in a minute. So why, though, why is the blood... Oh, back up one second. Israel will start doing their sacrifices again. Did you know that? During the tribulation... The Antichrist, the first thing the Antichrist is going to do is going to say, hey, Israel, you can build your temple and you can start doing your sacrifices and they're going to be all over it. In fact, I was just there and in the Temple Institute, they have all the instruments ready to go. I saw them. You can't take pictures because they say no cameras, but I might have snuck one. Don't tell anyone. Just kidding, I didn't. Ian, on the other hand. We'll see if he listens to this. Uh, they do. They have, they have the, the, the basin that's all made of brass, and it has all the 12 tribes. Of, oh, it's so cool. So cool, all the stuff that they got. And they're going to actually start using it again, and they have the, what, what they're going to use to kill. Oh, man, it's going to be cool. Except we won't get to see it. We'll be up in heaven. The rapture will happen, then this stuff will happen, then in the middle of that tribulation, the, the, the Antichrist is going to come in and say, you know what, stop doing all your sacrifices to God, and now you have to make them to me. And he's going to sit down in the Holy of Holies, he's going to sit down in the temple, and he's going to say, I'm God, and the Jews are going to be like, no you're not, and he's going to say, die, and he's going to kill, well, it's going to be crazy, they're going to be hid, three and a half years later, Jesus can come back, fix everything, amen. The end. That's right. But why blood? Why is the blood so important to God? Well, the next chapter actually tells us. Look at chapter 17. This is crazy. Chapter 17. Now, (laughs) chapter 17 of of Leviticus is one of the oddest chapters in the Bible. It basically teaches you why you shouldn't be a vampire. I'm not joking. It says you shouldn't eat blood. You shouldn't drink blood. You'll get crazy if you eat blood or drink blood, which actually in history, there was a bunch of cultures that did, and they all went kind of crazy. 
You have the Scythians and some of the Arabs in the, the desert wandering Arabs and these cultures that were like blood, we like it. They became kind of nutty and vicious. Okay, so there was some sort of thing there. But chapter 17, why you shouldn't be vampires. And then he gives us this reason in verse 11. And it's a very key verse in the whole Bible. You wouldn't think you'd find it in the middle of the vampire chapter, but you do. The middle of the vampire chapter, he says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. So it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. So in other words, God's saying, I made it this way, that the blood is what the life, that's what symbolizes your life. It's, what, it's where your life is held in. It's pictured in. You know you're going to lose your blood. It's gonna, you're going to pour out your blood one way or the other. Either you're going to lose an arm and you're going to bleed to death, or you're going to die of old age with no cut, and you're still going to lose all your blood because you're going to decay and it's all going to go out anyway. You can't hold on to your blood. It will forever, it's going to go away. Okay? And it's the symbol, God says, of life. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And he says it's the blood that he demands as an offering for your soul. That's the way God made it. That it's the blood that pictures your life. It's the blood that's an acceptable sacrifice. It's the price of your life is blood. It is your life. So instead of having you give your blood or your life when you sin, God set up a system in the Old Testament where you could kill a goat or a bull and the, the blood could temporarily cover your sins so you, so you could have a relationship with Him, even in your state of sin. And all of these things were looking forward to Jesus, as you and I know. They had to look forward to their Messiah, though. All these people were looking forward to the day when they didn't have to always go find a bull and be raising these goats and... I mean, how lame is that, that you always had to have a goat on hand? Maybe you like goats, I don't know, but I'm not a farmer. I wouldn't like to have to have goats all the time. But this was the way. They looked forward to the Messiah. They looked forward to the day when there would be one sacrifice that would take away their sins, not just cover them. And that's what these did. We get to look back at that. We get to look back at the sacrifice, because Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Well, that's a bummer. I've lived 80 years. I've sacrificed a goat every single year, and the high priest took it in, and it never took away my sins. No, it didn't. But if you died in faith, looking forward to the ultimate sacrifice, you would be saved back then. Just as today, no matter how many goats you sacrifice today, it's not going to save you. You have to look back in faith at the sacrifice of Jesus. And what does sacrificing goats look like today? Well, I'm going to get up and go to church every Sunday to make God happy. I'm going to help old ladies across the street even if they don't want it. I'm going to tithe 20% because I'm double awesome. Like a double rainbow. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to sacrifice something for God. I'm going to be uncomfortable for God. You know what they... Oh my goodness. People have got this 
They have been doing this. They've been sacrificing bulls and goats for the past 2,000 years and thinking they're part of the church, and they're not. The church doesn't sacrifice bulls and goats. Why? Because Hebrews 10.4 says it doesn't work. It doesn't work. So we don't sacrifice bulls and goats. We look in faith towards Jesus and his sacrifice. Well, we're given a wonderful picture of this sacrifice in Exodus chapter 12. So back up a little bit more. We can dig a little deeper into Exodus chapter 12. Turn with me there. Where God was using Moses powerfully to bring salvation to the people of God. And he gave them this amazing picture of the Messiah and his blood in this chapter. In Exodus chapter 12. By the way, how, how does Moses make his tea? He brews it. Hebrews, Hebrews, like. I love you, Cassidy. <laughs> if you ever don't get one of my jokes, I will gladly explain them in the middle of church. So you can laugh with the rest of us. And we can all laugh with you. (laughs) So, a little bit of background. The children of Israel are needing to be saved. Why? Because they are slaves in Egypt. They've been there 400 years. They started with 70 people. Came down there. There was a big famine. Joseph, their brother, was the prime minister of Egypt. So they're all, yay, food. 400 years go by. And they are no longer just citizens of that country, but they're all slaves of the Egyptians. And so they are enslaved. They started out, oh, it's great to be in the world. It's great to live by the resources of the world and have the world take care of us and provide for us. But the world has a way of enslaving anyone and everyone because it owns you once you're in it. So the children of Israel need to be saved. They're enslaved. They're working. Man, they have to work hard. We, we read some stuff about how they're working so hard. It's not what God wanted from them. He wanted to bless them. But man, they are working hard to please the world, just like everyone who's in the world right now. They are in the grind. They are trying to please their master, which is sin, even though they don't know it. They think, I'm just trying to get ahead. I'm just trying to please. I'm just trying. I'm working out for number one, which is me. And in reality, they're so deceived. It's sin that's their master. And God's like, well, I want to free you. So they're enslaved. They're working. But you know what? They start crying out. And who do they cry out to? God. And God hears their cry because he is so full of love. He loves his people. Anyone who cries to him, the Lord says, and there's so many scriptures say, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So God says, I'm going to bring Moses and he's going to save you guys. So he starts, you know, the whole story. You guys have seen the VeggieTales, right? So, you know, the giant pickle comes and he's there. You got ten plagues, okay? So nine of them have happened by this chapter, by chapter 12. Nine of them. There's one left. The doozy. The big one. But look, it, this, this one's going to be the amazing one. It's going to give us a great lesson about blood. He says in Exodus chapter 12, verse 1 through We're going to read 13 verses. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, 
On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, let him take his neighbor next to him to his house to take according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. Very important verse. Underline it. A a male of the first year. And you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Okay, so you're supposed to choose this lamb, this perfect unblemished lamb, which means he's just going to be so cute, so sweet, like the puppies that you see on Facebook and Instagram. They're just so sweet. Or the little cats, their eyes are just... And it's this little lamb. And you're supposed to take it into your family. And you're supposed to feed it. And your kids are supposed to play with it. And then you're going to kill it. Then, let's read. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Everyone bring your your sweet little pets out. Your lambs you've had for two weeks with your children just in love with them. and, And they've named that, you know... Lammy. And, and they're so just, they pet it, sleeping with your family. And he's, he's, your, he's so sweet. He lets you be his pillow. I mean, he lets you use him as a pillow. It's just wonderful. And then everyone says, all right, everyone, let's get out. And at twilight on this night, everyone take a knife and slit their throats. And let the blood just pour out. And all the children start crying out of as horror of what's going on right now. And that's exactly how God wanted it to be. He wanted people to understand the consequences of sin. That death is what happens. A throat being slit is what happens. That's the thing I can't handle. Oh my gosh. In a movie or whatever. Oh, can't, can't handle that. I don't like that. So just even saying it makes me just kind of... Ugh. Weird, but that's exactly how the Lord said. Then he says, verse 7, And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. And they shall, cut, they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire, with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall not, you shall let none of it remain until morning, and that which remains until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it, with a belt on your waist, with sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So shall you eat it with haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And I will, for I will bless through the land Pass, excuse me, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So again, the Lord's design is to save his people. 
And how does he distinguish who are his people and who are not his people? Those who believe him. Those who believe his word. Those who trust him. And how will they demonstrate that trust? They will kill this lamb and they will put its blood, the blood of the spotless lamb, on their doorposts and the lintel. What does that mean? Okay, they would take this and the doorpost. So you have a door. The doorposts are the things on the outside. So they put a little bit here and a little bit there. And the lintel is way up top right there. And if you were to just draw an imaginary line, what does that make? It's pretty cool. A cross, right? It's like Jesus had something planned or something. But the blood was a sign that they believed God's word and trusted God's promise. The blood was a sign. And it, now it's, it just astonishes me that John the Baptist, as soon as he saw Jesus coming down the road, he said, Behold, to all his followers, all the people, he said, There he is, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How could John be so intelligent? Probably because he read his Bible. Probably because he read the Old Testament with a heart that was soft. Looking for the one who would take away sin. And then he knows it's Jesus. The Spirit reveals to him, it's your cousin Jesus. So here you go. He says, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So it's clear that this was the plan all along. That God would purchase you back from your sin by his blood. Giving his life in exchange for yours. Wow. Guys, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53 is the coolest chapter in the Bible. I've never said that before. Just kidding. But it's, it's so wonderful what we see in here. Because this is 600 years before Jesus, the book of Isaiah. That other thing... Uh, in Exodus, is like 2,000 years before Jesus, all right? Well, it's like 1,700. So now here, we're 600 years before Jesus, and look at how God is developing this idea of the one who would eventually take away our sin by his blood. He's developing this idea. And what you don't know is I'm teaching you how you can minister to your Jewish friends. Maybe you have Jewish friends, maybe you don't. Either way, now you know. Look at Isaiah chapter 53. Start in verse, eh, start in verse 1. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, now as we're talking about Jesus here, the Messiah, shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He had no form or comeliness that when we see him, and there is no beauty that we should desire him. He's not going to be super good looking. He's not going to be the supermodel. Because he has a different job. Verse 3, he, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs he has, and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement for our peace was upon him. 
and by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a what? A lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. See, when a Jew read that, they knew what it meant. Instantly, their mind went to the Day of Atonement. Their mind went back to the Passover. And they knew that what this is saying is that the Messiah would sacrifice his life for their sins. They knew it. But did they believe it? John the Baptist did. He was a great Jew. (laughs) John the Baptist had a soft heart. It was so clear what Jesus was doing when he came on the earth. But did he find faith? Did he find soft hearts? Man, it is clear that this is God's plan. The Passover lamb was meant to be sacrificed once and for all. So we fast forward now 2,000 years. And Jesus asks us today, today, to still remember his blood. To remember the, the Passover. To remember the Day of Atonement. To think about these things. And why in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, it says, We have redemption in, through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Remember what a great cost it was for him to pour out his life and to buy you back from the sin that owned you. He calls us to do that. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to remember his blood. And so we're going to take communion, which is designed for us to engage with that. You know, the people of the Passover, they were asked to do something, right? They were asked to slit the throat of the lamb and let bleed and put the blood all over. They had this whole thing. They had to eat it with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. Well, you know what? We're going to do the same thing. And it's the same thing that Jesus called us to do. To remember the blood, to drink it, drink that grape juice that we got, and the unleavened bread, oh my gosh, we have that too. And the bitter herbs. What do you think the bitter herbs symbolized? Remembering with the bitterness and pain our own sin and the pain that it caused Jesus on the cross. So as we take communion right now, I want you guys to remember Jesus on the cross. Remember his blood. That's today's whole thing. Blood. We're not weird vampires. We're God's people who have been bought by a price. And Kurt and Norm are going are gonna to pass them out. And we're going to sing a song as we're, as we're letting them pass it out. And then we'll just hold it. We'll take it together. We'll pray. And we'll see what the Lord continues to do in our hearts as we look at his blood. As we understand the redemption that comes from his blood. So Jesus, we ask for a special blessing right now. We ask, Lord, that you would 
Give us ears to hear and a soft heart like John the Baptist had. Where he was unashamed to call you the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And I pray, Lord, that we would truly understand that and we would, we would partake it. We would take it inside us when we, when we drink this cup, Lord. And Lord, we just uh, we want to praise you now in, in, in simplicity and just believing all that you have for us.